Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The United States has long battled with an ugly history around race. While the nation was founded under the mantra that all men are created equal, more often than not, the nation's words have not matched its actions. U.S. presidents historically have often had a heavy hand in influencing race relations in this country. Some, like Woodrow Wilson, use the powers of their office to enforce segregation, while others, like John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower, used executive power to fight against it. Others have used the bully pulpit to temper racial tension during times of crisis. The enemy of America is not our many Muslim friends. It is not our many Arab friends. I say to you, quite frankly, that the time for racial discrimination is over. Or to unite the nation under one creed. For native-born Americans, it means reminding ourselves that the stereotypes about immigrants today were said almost word for word about the Irish and Italians and Poles, who it was said were going to destroy the fundamental character of America. And as it turned out, America wasn't weakened by the presence of these newcomers. These newcomers embraced this nation's creed, and this nation was strengthened. Then there's President Trump. Trump has heavily leaned on existing American prejudices. At times, he's used racist language or dog whistles, and he's repeatedly failed to denounce white supremacy, though he's later backtracked. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups? Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you, what are you, you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call him? What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a name. Trump's words have been spoken against a backdrop of racial reckoning in the U.S., And while President Trump didn't create our racial division, his influence on race relations in this country is palpable and will likely have effects for years to come. This is the first episode in a three-part series for Can He Do That? about the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. In office, he has served to try to Uh, appeal to his hardcore partisan conservative base at the expense of efforts to heal the country or, you know, bridge our partisan divide. In this series, we're looking at one of the most notable transformations of the United States under Trump's tenure, hyperpolarization. For the past 25 years, our country's been on this trajectory of increased partisanship and increased polarization, but it was really punctuated by the 2016 election, how deeply divided that left the country. And how some pieces of the Trump agenda have exacerbated this contentious, bitterly divided place in American history. So now, 2020, he's up for re-election, and this country is as divided as it's probably ever been, at least in our lifetimes, but perhaps dating back to the civil rights movement. 
In this episode, heightening tensions around race, where rhetoric, policies, and the administration's relationship with law enforcement leaves the people of our country, and how a fracturing along racial lines leaves the U.S. more divided. Philip Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Washington Post. He's been covering Trump since the businessman's entrance onto the political stage. And Philip will help guide us through each of the episodes in this series. Philip has meaningful insight into where the country stood before Trump and where it is now. And he's watched as the president has cemented his approach to rhetoric on race and racial divisions. There have been a number of specific instances where he has made outright racist comments as president. But beyond that, he has amplified and supported racism from some of his supporters and has stopped short of condemning white supremacy in a number of instances. He stopped short of calling out his supporters when they wave a Confederate flag or when they say things that are purely hateful and racist and and inappropriate in 2020 America. He has allowed that to fester and to grow. And we've seen, for example, the Proud Boys movement become emboldened and galvanized by this president. And so to that degree, he's exacerbated racial tensions in the country. And he does so deliberately, I think, because he thinks that this works to his political advantage. He thinks it helps energize and mobilize and galvanize his aggrieved white supporters who are upset about some of the demographic changes taking place in this country and and would like to see a whiter America that more resembles the country they grew up in. What was Trump's history around race relations long before he ever ran for president? Donald Trump has a very spotty history on race relations, and so does his father, Fred Trump. Donald Trump as a developer has been the subject of lawsuits, and there's been evidence of racial discrimination in his housing policies and who he would lease apartments to. He also, of course, pulled out that advertisement for the Central Park Five, which was considered inflammatory at the moment. Phillips referring there to a full-page ad Trump took out in several New York City newspapers back in 1989, calling for the state to adopt the death penalty after five Black and Latino teens were accused of raping a woman in Central Park. Thirteen years later, those teens were exonerated. As recently as 2019, Trump has refused to apologize for the ad or say that he was wrong. Yet when Trump entered the presidential race in 2015, little of that history was widely known to the American people. What people heard from the businessman reality TV star was a message centered on the economy. Economic messages from others in the Republican Party focused most on the tax code, on government spending, on traditional conservative economic principle. Trump talked about that too, but a significant part of Trump's economic message from early on in his candidacy was that immigration was the biggest problem for the American economy. Tough immigration policies have long been important to the GOP. Working class Americans are left to pay the price for mass illegal immigration. Reduced jobs, lower wages, overburdened schools, hospitals that are so crowded you can't get in, increased crime, and a depleted social safety net. But Trump's approach was more extreme and very unusual coming from a presidential candidate. Trump's rhetoric around immigrants suggested they were not just harming the economy, but he often equated immigrants with crime and violence. He sometimes resorted to hateful language. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. 
they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And the conventional wisdom was that Trump's anti-immigrant rhetoric would be a liability. But research shows that Trump's rhetoric contributed heavily to his election and his victory. That's Dr. Ray Sean Ray, a fellow at the Brookings Institution, whose research focuses on racial and social inequality and police-civilian relations. Simone Durham, who is a doctoral student at the University of Maryland, and I, we actually did an analysis of Donald Trump's tweets. And we focused specifically on his language around immigration. And what we found was that it overwhelmingly wasn't simply dog whistles, as people talk about, but instead it was a loud bullhorn to his base. And I think one of the best examples of this is that in 2016, in places where Donald Trump campaigned at, that hate crimes increased over 200% in those locations. At the time, there were lots of suggestions, many from members of Trump's own party, that when he entered office, he'd toned down his race-related rhetoric. But instead, over time, he appeared to be emboldened. One big one is continuously framing COVID-19 as the Chinese virus. That was specifically trying to play up stereotypes about immigrants, about people from Asia, and specifically people from China. We also know that his rhetoric about suburbia is also wrapped up in race. Part of the reason why it is, is because he knows that there was massive white flight when people left cities, not only following the 1968 riots, which had a big impact, but also more recently in the 80s, and in particular in the 90s and 2000s. Part of what Trump is saying is that if you have a predominantly white, stable, middle-class community with low crime, if we don't change policies, and if you don't reelect me, you're going to see your neighborhood fold to high crime. It's going to fold to low-income people. And the racial composition of your neighborhood is going to change. Trump's rhetoric about immigrants, about suburbia, his calling COVID-19 the China virus, these things were said in the context of a presidency marked often by tension around race. And Philip says there are a number of key moments where race relations really came to the fore. I think the most important and memorable for all of us was the deadly white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. After neo-Nazis marched with tiki torches through the streets of Charlottesville, the president said that he thought there were good people uh, on both sides of that debate. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me. That was an implicit endorsement of those people because he knew they were his supporters. And it was a, a scarring moment, I think, for a lot of Americans and a lot of people even inside the administration were appalled by the way the president handled that. But there have been other flashpoints as well. In 2019, he tweeted that four congresswomen of color, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and, and three others, that they should go back to where they're from, to their country. That, of course, is a racist trope. Their country is the United States. They don't have anywhere to go back to. They're all U.S. citizens. They were duly elected members of Congress in their districts. But the president made that comment and then he continued uh, harping on it for several days, speaking about them at rallies, defending himself, declaring himself not to be a racist. But it was, in fact, uh, a racist comment and it inflamed the tensions in this country. And I think most recently, after the killing of George Floyd, in Minneapolis in May of 2020 and the burgeoning Black Lives Matter as a movement, the mass protests in the street, the, the president really tried to pit 
Black Americans against white Americans and inflame those tensions, the way he talked about Black Lives Matter, the way he talked about law and order, to use a, a phrase from the civil rights movement, the way he talked about protesters as dogs who needed to be dealt with by police. It was a, a very difficult moment this past summer in the country's race relations, and the president has continued with some of that rhetoric into the fall. But just how historically unusual is this type of rhetoric? I asked Rayshawn whether this type of language from a president is unprecedented. It is unprecedented. And I think for a couple of reasons. While we know that presidential candidates in the past, such as Richard Nixon, I mean, used everything from the Southern strategy. They've talked about the silent majority. We've seen the type of dog whistles before. Even Reagan with his welfare queen rhetoric was all about Black people. But all of these were really dog whistles. We would have to go back uh, a century at least to find heavily overt forms of racism in the rhetoric of serious presidential candidates. So this is different. Donald Trump is um, a different type of president. He doesn't have a history in politics. He hasn't been socialized into the do's and don'ts. He's been in the entertainment industry. And he knows how to manipulate media. He knows how to have people only focus on him and what he's saying. And he comes from the perspective that any type of publicity is good publicity, even when it's bad. Has this language and rhetoric from Trump translated into actual policy from the administration? Are there tangible ways that we've seen this administration apply the beliefs that Trump espouses into policy? So I think most recently, what we've seen Trump do is to come out with a memo talking about that government agencies should not be engaging in implicit bias trainings. One thing I know from working with the Department of Homeland Security, from working with the military, from working with police departments, is that Trump is aimed to, to downplay and reduce the ability for these agencies to engage in racial equity work. The other thing we know is that he has tried to vilify organizations and even diffuse groups like Antifa. So not only trying to be heavy-handed with Black Lives Matter. The Department of Homeland Security has pushed back against this and actually said, well, when we actually look at the evidence, the groups that we should frame as being terrorist groups and the biggest threat to our democracy and our security are actually right-wing extremist groups, particularly white nationalists and white supremacist groups. I think we've also seen it around COVID-19. And the way we think about it is Trump aiming to, to reduce the ability for the CDC and other government agencies to full out act to reduce COVID-19, that this is overly exposed Blacks and Latinos to COVID-19. And I think that we can't downplay the ways that alleged colorblind policies actually have racial implications because it doesn't actually take into account that we unfortunately live in a racially inequitable society where you need policies that center racial equity and racial justice in order to deal with those particular things. Let's talk more about Black Lives Matter, since you've just mentioned Trump's response to the movement as a place where we've seen Trump go beyond rhetoric to implementing policy based on his views. I want to talk about this year's protests that erupted around the country in response to police violence. Can you compare for me how Trump has treated protests around the country and protesters versus how he's treated law enforcement? So Donald Trump has aimed to show a heavy hand when it comes to protesters. Everything from showboating outside of the White House, and then it led to the mayor of Washington, D.C., responding with Black Lives Matter Plaza, to deploying troops around the country, 
from everywhere, from Portland, Seattle to other cities. Just one note here, though President Trump did threaten to deploy active duty military personnel to quell protests across the country, he didn't actually do that. He did, though, send federal law enforcement officers to Portland, Oregon, and to Seattle, Washington, and other cities in response to the unrest. Trump's angle is to highlight that what is happening in cities right now has to do with Democrats, has to do with liberal cities. And so his response to that is to come down with a heavy hand to show that he is law and order because he recognizes that conservatives and liberals overwhelmingly do not respond well to violent protest. But despite what might be happening in the media, despite what Trump might show, a recent report came out showing that over 90% of protests linked to Black Lives Matter had no violence occurring at all. But that is a very different picture that Trump wants to paint. Some of the commercials that have been airing recently in all regions of the country, a lot of the commercials have been about a lack of law and order and that by electing Joe Biden will continue that. But when I look at the images, I find it fascinating that those images are actually from a Trump administration. Those images are actually from a Trump presidency. Now, of course, Trump has said many times that nobody has ever done more for the Black community than he has. Is there any truth to that? I mean, are there things he's done that we can look at that have benefited people of color in this country? Well, I think one of the things that Trump would say is the economy. He would say, well, look, unemployment is one of the lowest that it's ever been in history, particularly for Black people and Latinos. And before COVID-19, that was true. But COVID-19 further exposed this in a way that saying this a year ago would have led to additional discussions. Now people just get it is that there are different types of jobs. And having a job that still doesn't allow you to put food on the table after working 40 hours a week, that still doesn't allow you to pay for health insurance, that still doesn't allow you to pay for rent, how good are these jobs? It's more about the quality of the job that you have. And we're seeing that with frontline essential workers, the way that they're exposed, that Blacks and Latinos are overly exposed in those occupations. The other big thing that Trump would talk about is the push that he's done legislatively on criminal justice reform, particularly with the First Step Act. The First Step Act, by the way, was a bipartisan bill signed in 2018 that, among other things, aimed to lessen the over-incarceration of Black people, and it reduced some mandatory minimum sentences. Now, as a person who was in this space, what I know is that Senator Cory Booker pretty much had been working on that for a very long time. So, of course, people have to vote on it. The Senate voted on it. The House voted on it. It goes to the president's desk. But it wasn't like this bill came from the presidency and worked its way down. But, of course, Trump is going to take credit for everything. According to him, when it comes to Black people, he says he's done more for Black people than any other president in history. The research I've done suggests that that is just unfortunately not the case. As voters head to the polls, Trump hasn't quite toned down his rhetoric. As recently as the presidential debate in late September, Trump failed to condemn white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. Though at a town hall in October, he did backtrack and denounce them. Wait, are you listening? I denounce white supremacy. Okay. What's your next question? And that was just weeks before the election. Evidence that these issues could be top of mind for voters as they head to the polls.
We started this episode by noting that the U.S. has had a long history with racism. That racism in the U.S. is not new. And yet it still seems that this moment in this country feels different, more charged, more intense, more ripe for change. So I wanted to know how true that is. I asked Rayshawn, is this moment, in fact, different? One thing I know about healthcare from my wife is people oftentimes get sicker before they get better. And I think when societies are grappling with their culture, part of what happens is that things get sicker. Part of things getting sicker means things get more exposed. If you ask Black people, if you ask Latinos about their experiences in this country, some of it has exacerbated during this time, but their lives have still not been good. They weren't good before the pandemic. They're not good during the pandemic. And we always talk about the 1950s and 1960s, but 2020 is a year that will forever change the United States of America. The events of 2020 have brought renewed attention to ongoing concerns about systemic racism in our criminal justice system and around the country. This moment has exposed long-standing racial inequities in every aspect of American life. It's forced a deep reckoning across society. Unrest and increased calls to action are evidence that this country has been affected, has changed over the past four years, in part as a response to the highly charged rhetoric and conversation around race. But I wondered, has Trump changed? Has there been any evolution in his attitude or his language about race during his time in the White House? I turn back to Philip. I don't know that there's been much of an evolution because I feel like the the tone and the language has been consistent throughout. You know, it's not language that we hear every day, but there are sort of moments of racism, frankly, and of rhetoric that seems to really cross the line that have flared up throughout from the first year to the last year. And so it does not appear that the president has uh, changed his thinking or changed his rhetorical strategy. If Trump does win a second term, is there any chance after witnessing the state of division in our country that Trump might change his approach? I suspect not, in part because I don't think very much about Trump at all changes. He's a 74-year-old man. He's stubborn to some degree, like a lot of 74-year-old men are. And he is who he is. He's Donald J. Trump. And I think what he believes is, is largely what he says. And I don't see him changing his beliefs, even if he wins a second term. In fact, I think if he wins a second term, he will interpret that as validation for his beliefs, for the things that he has said, and, and a sign that, you know, if he behaves this way and makes these sorts of comments about race, not only uh, will he not be held accountable for it or punished for it, but he will in fact be rewarded for it by the American people. On the next episode, we take a look at how an erosion of trust in and the weakening of U.S. science-based institutions could have gone largely unnoticed by much of the country until a global pandemic made it impossible to ignore. This has been the first episode in a special series for Can He Do That? about the legacy of the past four years of the Trump administration. A big thank you to Philip Rucker and Dr. Ray Sean Ray. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. This series was produced by Ariel Plotnick and Arjun Singh with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. 
What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Mm-hmm.